So this morning, we are going to be talking about a heart after God, <clears throat> the life of David, a heart after God. Uh, l- last week, uh, Pastor Lucy talked about making our hearts available to God, and I, I, I was going another direction. I was thinking of s- something else, and then um, the Lord just really started working on my heart about having a heart after Him. And so I'm just going to kind of we're just this is going to be a more than a one week one week sermon for me. I'm going to preach again in a couple weeks, and so I'm going to do part two then. But we're just going to be talking about heart, uh, having a heart for the Lord. If you uh, if, if someone were to tell you that they love you with all of their heart, what would that mean to you? What would that mean? You know, we sing songs about giving our heart to the Lord. We just sing about that, giving him everything, giving him our heart, giving him our soul. I mean, what does that really mean? What does it mean? And, you know, we sing in our songs, but there's songs like everywhere that has the word and the concept heart in it, doesn't it? A ton of them. I did a, I did a Google search. I like the top 100, but I'm only going to read you just a few. But So here's some songs with the word heart in it. See if you uh, recognize any of these. You guys remember? You guys remember the 80s? You remember any Huey Lewis in the news, right? The heart of rock and roll. How about total eclipse of the heart? Right, Bonnie Tyler? How about tell it to my heart? Taylor Dane, you remember that one? <laughs> so no, no way. Uh, Stereo hearts, gym, gym class heroes. You've heard that one, stereo hearts. How about Heartless by Kanye West? Um, Break Your Heart. Is it Tayo Cruz with Ludacris, right? Break Your Heart. How, yeah, I don't know who they are, but uh, um, <laughs> I probably just got myself in trouble, huh? <laughs> Owner of a Lonely Heart. Yes, I know that one. How about a heart shaped box, Nirvana? Uh, don't go breaking my heart, Elton John. Right, achy breaky heart. You remember that one? Um, heartbreaker, Pat Benatar. Uh, young at heart, Frank Sinatra. And then you know we can't forget, right? Deep in the heart of Texas, right? That's a, that's a great one right there. Not only does the not only does the does the concepts of heart uh, fill our pop culture, fill our music, fill our movies, but the Bible deals talks about our hearts, actually from the very first page to the very last page. And so we're going to talk about that, having a heart after God, and we're going to focus on the life of David this morning. Now, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. He was the greatest king. He ruled during what's called the golden era era of Israel. He was a warrior. Uh, We even sang earlier about how he famously killed the giant Goliath in that great battle. So he was a warrior. He, he was a musician. He was a psalmist. He wrote at least half of the psalms that are in our book of psalms in the Bible. Um, he, he, was, he was an ancestor to Jesus of Nazareth. So this is great legacy, this great king. And one of the greatest quotes about David comes from God himself, where he's recorded saying this about, about David in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. It says, I have found David son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Think about that a minute. A man after my own heart. Man, could that be said about me? Could that be said about us? After our, We have a heart after God, and he will do everything I want him to do. That's my prayer this morning. We, have a, we would have a heart after God. 
And so uh, what, I, what I'm going to do is I, we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up there, whether electronically or paper, however you have it with you. I don't have these um, up on the screen because I'm just going to go through them kind of fast. I'm going to tell a story about how David was selected as this king of, of Israel. So what's happened in this, in, this, in this setting is that Saul is the king of Israel, and he is re, he, he's disobeyed God. His heart has become hardened, and he's rejected God. And so God has honored his decision, and he's removed his favor, moved, removed his hand upon him as the king. And he says, We're gonna pick, I'm going to pick another. And so he sends the prophet Samuel to the village of Bethlehem. And so he sends him to Bethlehem, and he goes, Go call a worship service together, bring everybody together, make sure that you get Jesse there and his boys and because the new king is one of his sons. So I want him there at the service. So he comes, he, they, they have a worship service in Bethlehem, uh, the, the, the village, the city's there, Jesse's there, his boys are there. And so he calls Jesse and his boys forward. He calls them out and, and he, he uses his own logic, like he uses his own mind. He sees his oldest son, Jesse's oldest son. He's like, well, surely this is going to be the next king of Israel. Surely this is him. And so verse 6 says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands right here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. I've not chosen him. The Lord does not look at the at the things people look at. People look at outward appearances, right? We know that's true, right? People look on the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Verse 8, then Jesse called the next oldest, Abinabab, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shema, the next one, pass by. And Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. It's not this one. It's not this one. It's not, the Lord kept, it's not this one. And so they get to the end and, and he's like, he's confused, right? Because he told Jesse to bring his sons. Jesse brings his sons. The Lord told him it's one of these sons that's going to be king. But the Lord's told him none of these are the king. So Samuel, I'm puzzled here. I, I, I told you to bring your son. Do you have another son? And, and, and Jesse's like, well, I mean, we got the runt, right? We got, we got the youngest. We got, we, we got our, our, young, our youngin'. We got, we got the one left, David. But I mean, he's out in the field. He's working. He's taking care of the sheep. And Samuel's like, okay, well, go get him. We're not stopping. We're not resting until he comes. Go get him. And so they bring him. And they bring him forward. And as they bring him in, Samuel sees that the Lord's hand is on him. And the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and poured and anointed him and poured this oil on him in the presence of his brothers and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Some translation says, like, a, like a, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, as we, as we hear in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit descended, came upon David, and anointed him to be the king of Israel because of his heart, because he had a heart after God. You know what just grabs my attention about this? Is that David was the forgotten one. He was the forgotten one. 
Have you ever felt forgotten about? Man, I have. I've, I have felt forgotten about. I have been forgotten about. I've felt that. I know you, we've all felt that. This is the interesting thing about, about David being the forgotten one. He was forgotten about, but he didn't even know he was forgotten about because he was out in the field. He wasn't even invited to the church service, right? He was totally, he was forgotten about, and he didn't even know he was, a for, he was forgotten about. And it made me think, man, I know times I've been forgotten about, but how many times have I been forgotten about that I don't even know that I've been forgotten about, right? <laughs> but the Lord hasn't forgot about you. The Lord hasn't forgot about me. He hadn't forgot about David. And somebody needs to hear this today. Some of you online need to hear that you are not forgotten about by the Lord. He has not forgotten you. You know, not only do we see in Scripture somebody that, that was forgotten about, but we see it in history as well. I, I don't know how to pronounce Mr. Honda's name. I'll try. Sochiro, maybe. Maybe it's Sochiro. But, but Mr. Honda tried to get a job with the Toyota Corporation, and they rejected him. They said, forget about it. They moved on from him. And how many of you think Toyota wished they would have hired Honda, Right? But now it's the greatest competitor. How about Walt Disney? He had a rough start. He was fired by a newspaper editor because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. <laughs> we know how that story ends, don't we? Thomas Edison. In his early years, teachers, teachers told Edison that he was too stupid to learn anything. Work was no better as he was fired from his first two jobs for not being productive enough. Even as an inventor, Edison made 1,000 unsuccessful attempts at inventing the light bulb. But of course, he finally succeeded. How about Sidney Portier, a great after actor's first audition. Portier was told by the casting director, why don't you stop wasting people's time and go out and become a dishwasher or something? Portier vowed to himself that he would make it. And he went on to win an Oscar and become one of the, one of the, a great, great, well-respected actor. How about Harrison Ford? In his first film, Ford is told by movie execs that he didn't have what it takes to be a star. Can you imagine being the one telling Harrison Ford that? Oh, you don't have what it takes. You see, you are not forgotten by God. He has not forgotten you. There's a song by a worship leader in a Foursquare church in Southern California uh, his name's Tommy Walker, and he, there's a song that he's written that I just love. And it says, he knows my name. It's taken from, I think it's Psalm 139, which says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God made you in your mother's womb. You are fashioned on purpose. The Lord knows you. He knows everything about you. He loves you. He cares for you. And this is how a portion of this song goes. It says, I have a maker. He formed my heart even before time began. My life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. I have a father. I have a father. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. Friend, you are not forgotten. He knows your name and he cares. 
and he cares. We need to be, I think some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. But not only do we need to be reminded that we're not forgotten. As we have a heart after God, he begins to give us his heart for those that others have forgotten. Because there are those all around us that our society has forgotten. The kids that we prayed for this morning, that we're giving this money towards, that we're, we're helping out, those are some forgotten kids in our community that now are going to have to live in an orphanage. They're forgotten. God hasn't forgotten them. He loves them. There's some people that you work with that are forgotten. They're just kind of ostracized. God hasn't forgotten them. In your school, there's kids that are forgotten. Man, God hasn't forgotten them. And as we, as we get our hearts, we get a heart after God, he gives, us, he gives us a heart for the forgotten. In your neighborhood, there's some people that have forgotten. With, the, with what's gone on in our world in this last season, I believe our world is more isolated than ever. There are a lot of people that feel forgotten right now. And I believe the Lord wants to use you. He wants to use me to touch them and to help them and to be there for them. And, and so I have a challenge for you. When you're, when you're driving or you're, as you're praying, as you're working, or you're at school, wherever you are, when a, person's, when a person comes to your mind, when you think of a person, when a person draws your attention either in your mind or you see them, like just assume that that's from God, okay? Like just assume that that's from God and respond, maybe a text, maybe a call, an email, a drop by of a just, hey, how are you? And just see what God will do. You'll, you'll see that God prompted you, that, that he was leaning you. He, he remembered them. We read all through scripture where God remembers people and he's remembering people. And, he, and then he, he places them on our hearts because we're his hands and feet extended. We're his heart extended into our world, into our world. So how did David develop a heart after God, right? How did he do this? I want to do it. How did he do this? Well, well, I think for us to really understand how he developed this heart after God, we have to understand what heart really means. What is the Old Testament biblical concept of heart? And, and what, does that, what does that mean for us? So we have a video uh, for you guys to watch. Uh, it's from the Bible Project. It's a ministry that we've shown, a, I think about a year ago, we showed a video from them. Um, do you guys remember, remember Randy Remington, the uh, president of our fellowship that was here several weeks ago? His son actually works for this ministry and uh, is a part of the tech department. And so I didn't know that before he was here. But yeah, you guys are going to, I think you're really going to love this video. And I think it's really going to help heart come alive. So let's, let's watch this together. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. 
They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life, and there's more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it's like what Nathan said to David, whatever's in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known proverb, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Now the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick, who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Psalm 78, it tells us the history of Israel. And as it tells us the history of Israel, it comes to the portion where David is chosen as king. It describes what we read earlier out of 1 Samuel 16. And it says, Then he chose David, his servant. He handpicked him from his work in the sheep pens. One day he was caring for the ewes and their lambs. The next day, God had him shepherding Jacob, his people, Israel his prized possession. His good heart made him a good shepherd. And he guided the people wisely and well. He was faithful with what God entrusted to him. He was serving the sheep. He was taking care of his dad's flock. And his good heart made him a good shepherd. Now, as you read this, like we read it from the backside, right? We know that God took David from the pasture to the palace, right? Like we know the whole story. And it would be easy 
for us to look at it and be like, man, I want to go from the pasture to the palace. I want to go from, from, the, from the, the bottom to the top. Okay, so what do I need to do that? I need a, I need a good heart. Okay, God, give me a good heart because I want to make it to the palace, right? Well, what's interesting about this is there was no palace at this time. This wasn't a self-help strategy that David had. This wasn't a, oh, if I can have a good heart, I can be successful at life. I can have successful, and I can be the king if I have a good heart. No, that wasn't, there wasn't even a palace. I mean, Saul was the king. He was out fighting battles to take ground. There wasn't a palace yet. There wasn't the capital in Jerusalem. Uh, David didn't have an end goal in mind. His goal was simply to be faithful with what had been entrusted to him. That was his pure heart. That was his good heart. And so the question for us today is, are, are you, am I, are we being faithful with what God has given us today? Are we being faithful with, with what it is? Now, I have never cared for actual sheep. I've been around sheep a little bit. I've been to county fairs. I've driven through Scotland and Ireland. I've uh, been on a few farms where there were some sheep, but I've never, I've never really been around sheep an extended period of time. I've read about them. I, I, I know that they have some unique idiosyncrasies to take care of, but I mean, at the end of the day, livestock is livestock to a certain degree, and I've been around livestock. I've helped take care of livestock, and I know when you take care of livestock, they need to eat, they need to rest, they need proper exercise, but not too much, not too little. They need to be protected from predators, from themselves. They need to be protected from other bullies in the herd. And then there's always a lot of poop to clean up, right? I mean, there, there always is. And that is the context that David found himself. And in that context, he was faithful. God knew that if he would be faithful and if he would care for these little lambs when no one was watching, that he would be faithful with the people of Israel. Verse 72, there's some other translations of that, of that verse. The one that said that, that, that he, he, he shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands. That word integrity is a big word. That's having a heart after God. The word integrity, it comes from the Latin word. The, the root word for that is integer or integer. Uh, it's a math word. Right, And I struggle with that, saying that word for a couple reasons. One is because I'm originally from Oklahoma, so I just have trouble talking. Uh, and then the, the other reason is because I wasn't faithful in the little things of early math. So when later math came along, I struggled with it. But integer, that word means whole. It's a whole number. It's not, it's not fractioned. It's not divided. And, and when, our, when our heart is whole, when there's integrity of heart, it's not fractioned. It's not divided among the cares of this world. It's not, it's not double-minded. It's, it's integrous. It's a full heart after God. David had integrity of heart. May we be people that have integrity of heart. So that's the first thing is he was faithful with what God had entrusted to him. And then secondly, he allowed God to use his vocation or his job, or the outside of you work, what's going on out here to work on his inside, on his heart. Think about that a moment. David allowed God to use his vocation, his job, the outside world which he operated in, 
God used that to do an inner work in him, in his heart. I don't think we often think about these two concepts together. Let's think for just a moment about some of the aspects of work, right? Maybe you can relate to this. Anybody here, do you ever have stress at work, right? You ever have stress? How about difficulty? You ever, there any difficulty at stress or work? How about problems? You ever have problems at work, right? Like the reason, reason you probably have a job is because there is a problem, right? And you're trying to solve that problem. I, now, I know none of you have relational conflicts at work, right? There's that, yeah, n- there's ethical dilemmas at work. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we deal with every day. How I many you know that is great material for God to work in, with? That is great material for God to work at on the inside of us. He has promised us that he is going to conform us to the image of his son, that he is going to shape a heart within us, uh, that, that he's going to do that work in us. And so, like, we spend, like, about a third, at least a third of our day working, right? At least a third. And those of you that are a stay-at-home mom or a dad, like, you're like a, it's like 100% of your day, right, day and night. There's no way God's going to waste that. I mean, God's economy, he doesn't waste anything, does he? Like, I mean, he doesn't. He's a great recycler. I mean, he has flies, he has maggots. Like, he doesn't even waste poop, right? I mean, God wastes nothing, and he's not going to waste your job on, on just, it's not just about you collecting a paycheck, okay? It's not just about you doing something. It's not just about, I mean, but we're all thankful for the paycheck, right? But, but, but ultimately, there's greater purpose than that. There's greater purpose. And, and, and I know of just interacting with people over the years that there can be this notion that, that, that somebody that's in professional ministry that like their job is more holy or it's more sacred or it's more, more, there'd be more God could work with in that. And I just want to bust that. I just want to say that's just not true. That my work is not any more holy than your work. It's just different. That God has placed you where you are at on purpose. And maybe you don't want to be there right now, but be faithful in what God's given you right now because he has you there on purpose. There's people that you work with that you are the only one that can touch them. You're the only one that can reach them. Those of you that are in school, and if you're in school, that is your job, right? Like that is your vocation. That is, give yourself to that 100%. And, and, but there's, there's people that God wants you to touch and he wants you to reach and nobody else can. We are the hands and the feet of Christ extended in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our jobs, in our community. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his heart. And as we, as we live and move and have our being, he works in us and he also works through us. That your job is holy. Holy means set apart. It means that you're anointed to do what, what you're doing in this season of your life and that do it as unto the Lord. And as you do it as unto the Lord, he will, he will bless the, 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 your hands. He'll, he'll, he'll bless the fruit of your labor, the Bible tells us, but he'll also use the environment that you're in to do a work inside of you. Colossians uh, chapter 3 says this, and, and this was written to slaves, okay? So just let that sink in for That was written to slaves and, and how much more so to us who are employees. But it says, servants, 
employees, do what you're told by your earthly masters and don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work, work from the heart. Right? This is what we're talking about, heart after heart. Work from the heart for your real master, for God. See, God's your boss. Ultimately, God is our boss. We work for him, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. Right? Can we get an amen on that one, right? Right? And so understand that we serve the Lord. We work for him and he has placed us where he, David was being shaped for the palace in the pasture. He was being shaped to lead Israel by leading these sheep. God was doing, he was working in the midst of that. God was using his work to do something inside of him. And I'm here to tell you, God is, I believe God wants to do the same thing in your life and in my life. That he uses everything and he wants to use this to conform us to the image of his son. He wants to do that. Well, I'm going to, I know it's kind of an abrupt ending, but I'm going to transition to another just passage that, that David wrote. And I'm going to pick this sermon up in a, in a couple weeks. And we're going to continue with a, a heart after God. But as we look at this, I want to, will you get the, the communion elements that you were handed when you came in here? And, and uh, if you didn't get it, we have some ushers. They'll, they'll, they'll get some of the baskets that have these. And in just a moment, if you just want to lift your hand, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll make sure you get one of these. If you, got, if you somehow got by and didn't get one, they'll just, yeah, just put your hand up, they'll, they'll bring you one. And as they're doing that, you know, I was, I was, I was getting, the, I was getting communion already. When I was doing that, I opened the boxes that had these in them. And uh, I found it kind of interesting that the, there's a verse that they use, a verse David wrote that they used to advertise these. And it says, catch this, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, these communion wafers. And I thought, the pastors of America should come together and form a class action lawsuit and sue them for false advertisement. <laughs> These are not good. It's not. <laughs> we bought thousands of them at the beginning of COVID. Like, we didn't know how long we were. I mean, we just, we got, we got a lot of these and they never expire. They're like McDonald's French fries. They, they're good till Jesus comes. Oh, Lord, help me get back on track here. <laughs> have you ever done that? Have you ever lost a French fry under the... You can find it years later, and a McDonald's French fry does not look any different. Year, it looks the same years later. <laughs> help me, Lord. Here we go. Okay. So David, he wrote a, a, a great psalm, Psalm 23. You're, you're, I'm sure you're, you, maybe you're familiar with it. If not, read it later. He says, the Lord is my shepherd... I shall not want, and it goes on. I think it's in verse six. It goes to that. He prepares a banquet for me in the presence of my enemies. He throws a six-course meal for me in the middle of my enemies. That's a revolutionary thought. 
It's revolutionary because David knew what it was like to be hunted after. He knew what it was like to be chased. He knew what it was like to have an enemy. And friends, we do too. There's enemies all around us. We, we, we battle enemies. There's, there, maybe you're battling an enemy of fear today. Maybe there's fear. Maybe there's anxiety that you're, you're battling, and that's an enemy to you. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's physical health. Maybe there's sickness. Maybe there's financial difficulty. Maybe there's relational difficulty. Maybe there's, there's something in your life, and it is like an enemy to you. And we tend to think that the banquet, the party, the celebration happens after these enemies are vanquished. I mean, that makes sense, right? But David says, no, that right in the middle of your enemies, right in the middle of the problem, right in the middle of the difficulty, that right there, God has a banquet for you. That right there, God has something beautiful for you. That right there, God has something for you to celebrate. That he comes in, in the midst of enemies, in the midst of difficulties, and he throws a party that we can have victory before we ever see our enemies vanquished. And the reason we can have that is because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. That on the night he was crucified, enemies all around about to come and execute him, he threw a party. He, there was a banquet table. And he had, we, we call it the Lord's table. He came to the Lord's table. He had dinner with his disciples and he took the wine and he took the bread and he said, this is a symbol of, of my body which will be broken for you. This is a symbol of my blood that will be poured out for you. And as often as you eat and as often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me that there is victory that he was purchasing right there on the cross. That because he conquered death, hell, and the grave, that we too, we have a banquet in the presence of our enemies. That we are victorious in Christ Jesus. In fact, if our worship team would come up, if you guys would come up, we're going we're gonna to prepare. We're going to receive this together in just a moment. And as we do this, I want you to think about what Jesus has done for us. We, we're going to sing a song about the song we sang earlier about giving our heart, giving our life, giving everything to the Lord. And then whatever difficulty you're going through, that Jesus is the answer. He is the victory. He, he has a banquet table prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. And he is that banquet. He is the manna from heaven. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us. That it's his, it's his representation of his, of supernaturally, of his body and of his blood that, that, that impacts our lives. So let's, let's pray together.